Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm delighted to speak with Abigail Coleman, who's a counsel at the law firm of Aiken Gump in Washington, D.C. Abby's practice focuses on representing corporate and individual clients in internal and government-facing investigations, including criminal, congressional, and regulatory proceedings. She also has experienced counseling clients in a variety of white-collar defense matters, represents companies and individuals in a broad range of congressional inquiries, and on top of that, has trial experience in both federal and state courts. In addition to her work for private clients, she's deeply committed to pro bono. She was an Aiken Gump pro bono scholar and initiated Aiken Gump's pro bono parole representation project, which I hope we can talk about in a little bit, which was recently awarded an Outstanding Achievement Award by the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. A regular listener recommended Abby for the show, and I'm so grateful uh, that she did. Abby's a graduate of Cornell, Go Big Red, and Georgetown Law, Go Hoyas. Welcome to the podcast. Go Big Red, Go Hoyas. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Awesome. So look, before we dive into your investigations in pro bono practice, I was hoping we could just talk a little bit about your path to the law generally, um, and more specifically, your path to big law. So path to law was always an interest and passion for criminal defense. My parents actually were both public defenders in D.C. way back in the day. And so even in undergrad, I started interning at different public defender offices, once in Charleston, which was a great summer, and um, once in D.C. as well, uh, and then found myself at Georgetown and quickly actually found myself in the big law path because I did the pro bono scholars program for Aiken Gump, which is a two-summer program. Back then, it was fairly unusual to have a two-summer program. I think that that's picked up more recently. Sure. And for me, I think I just stumbled across it, you know, Googling or at Georgetown, saw a flyer for, for a talk. And Steve Schulman is the pro bono partner at Aiken, and he did his pitch on the whole program. So you spent your first summer at a nonprofit organization, and then you came back as a as a second-year summer associate. And for me, I was like, well, this kind of sounds like best of both worlds. I didn't really have any idea what big law meant, but I had only experienced public defender type offices before. Sure. And so I applied and and got it. And so my first summer was half spent in uh, New Orleans, also fun summer, the Orleans public defender, working under another Georgetown alum, Jill Pasquarella at the time. The other half of my summer was at Aiken Gump, learning what a law firm did and what a law firm did in the pro bono sphere. So learning why it was important for law firms to participate in the pro bono community, how they formed relationships, how they took on. So kind of like the business and like the logistics of it all, which was really totally. fascinating. Yeah, that makes sense. And then second summer came back as just, you know, your average summer associate trying to figure out again, like what it meant on the ground to be doing big law work and found myself being very interested in litigation, which was kind of typical based on the other work that I had done and kind of learned what a government investigation was and haven't looked back. Amazing. You know, one of the questions that I get from students all the time, especially students who come, um, and I teach at Georgetown also, and I'm also a Georgetown alum, so a lot of Georgetown pride on this episode, 
a lot of what my students come to Georgetown is because they want to change the world. They want to use our profession for good. And they often ask me, especially for that second summer, increasingly for the first summer, which I don't totally understand because that's different than when you and I were applying to big law jobs, but certainly for the second summer, they sort of ask, is it worth going to a big law firm, even if I think I ultimately may want to be a legal services lawyer or a nonprofit lawyer or a government lawyer? What do you have to say to those folks? I mean, I guess it's like, why are you doing it? What's the angle? I think you can find amazing mentorships. Um, Hmm. I think you get great training, which everyone always talks about, but it's true. And I think you also get to open your eyes to different types of the legal practice, which is harder to do in the public sector. You're usually more focused on like a public defender's office, right? They're doing lots of novel theories and arguments and cases and super interesting work, but it's still focused fairly narrowly versus at a law firm. Again, the type of law that you're going to be kind of exposed to could open your eyes to all new paths. And, you know, here I am many years later, we don't have to say how many years later, and I'm still here because I've loved the work that I had no idea about. And I learned about only as a summer associate. So Hmm. that I mean, I, I think my pitch is fairly strong for it. And again, just broadening your your experiences because you don't you learn a lot in law school, but you don't really learn about the practical Hmm. day in, day out of what people are doing. Yeah, it's it's gaining those experiences and gaining as many as quickly as you possibly can. I mean, I'm usually not a person who pitches quantity over quality, but especially when you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you want to do, the more experiences you have, as you said, the more experiences you have, you you have more experience that allows you to make that next decision. And people, right? You're going to meet so many different, and you you do that. I think Georgetown does a great job of that, especially with the adjunct professors. But at a law firm, you're going to see so many people and ask them about their path and how they got to where they got. And most people haven't been at a law firm for straight for 30 years. Most people have gone to the public sector at a certain point and have had all sorts of different reasons for kind of how they ended up where they ended up. So I think it's also, you learn about different areas of law, but also just different paths you can take. Yeah. And so I guess the the follow-up to that is, did you actually see yourself still being at a big law firm all these years later? Never. <laughs> But I mean, there's many reasons why I've stayed and, and and a big part of it is the work and a big part of it is is the pro bono aspect of the work that I've been able to do. Awesome. Well, like, let's let's talk about those things. Let's start with the uh, the I don't know if you call it the billable work, but that's how I think about it, sort of pro bono and, and paying client work. Tell me a little bit about how you, um, you know, you got into investigations and then maybe we could talk a little bit about sort of what the heck that means. Well, I always joke that I got into investigations because the head of our co-head of our white collar practice and head of our litigation group in DC, he actually started the same day as me. Hmm. So I was like, Chuck, you and me, we're we're partners. Um, And he, he had just come from the government and, and was building his own practice at Aiken. And I ended up working with him almost exclusively for the first few years, doing his government investigations and helping him and really honestly learning what it all meant. Um, Because I, I don't have prior government experience and I was just a newbie at the law firm. And so just kind of having someone take me under their wing and then become a mentor was was a big part of it. But it's also I was just found it to be so engaging. I mean, I think the same aspects that I liked about public defender work actually applied quite easily to the government investigation space because it's still fact building and telling a narrative and kind of putting that all together for your client. And it was much it was much easier than I thought to kind of I, I think going into big law, I was like, well, how do you represent like a whole company? You know, what does that mean? And and how can you feel connected in the same way? But you're really talking to individuals, whether they're, you know, a CEO or a CFO, 
or, you know, head of their board, you're, you're still talking to people who have never gone through this process before, who maybe they've received a subpoena, maybe they've re- received a knock on their door from an FBI agent, and they don't have any idea what to do, and they are scared. And so you're still walking them through the same kind of complicated, scary process and figuring out the facts and then telling that same narrative to the government. So I definitely got drawn in and, and then I was hooked. Yeah, it's amazing how being in the right place that you don't even know it's the right place at the right time with the right person is so much of professional life. I think as students become more savvy, and I've noticed that they are much more savvy coming to law school than when I started in law school. I certainly was not. (laughs) Right. And and we, you know, we were talking before we started recording, and I think we sort of are are roughly uh, the same time frame and had the similar experiences. They, because they're savvy, they think all they have all the answers and they need to like make this very specific path. But you also have to be open to a little bit of serendipity, it sounds like, because you started at Aiken on the right day when they needed yeah. when they needed bodies in a brand new practice. And and that's that's certainly part of joining a law firm too, right? It's all business driven. So like for instance, the congressional investigations aspect of my practice, that's picked up as the business demand has 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 required. Um, so I didn't really start doing that work. That's come later and just kind of dovetailed nicely with what I was already doing. The serendipity aspect always freaked me out as a summer associate because I was like, well, what if there's not a wing? Like, what if that doesn't happen for me? And I do think that if you find the right place and you, um, again, like I think looking for those connections and mentors, you always end up finding it. But um, I do think as you're saying, there always is a little bit of serendipity as well. Sure. And talk to me a little bit about what an investigation looks like. I mean, I know you do different types of investigations, but especially as a former sort of civil litigator, and I think we talk more sort of in the litigation documents in law school and, you know, you take Civ Pro. What does an investigation look like and how is it different, if at all, from the work of a sort of more traditional trial litigation posture? Yeah. So again, as the non-savvy um, associate, I had no idea what any of this meant. Like people could have said the FCPA to me as maybe even as a first year associate, I had no idea what that meant or or what it meant practically. Right. So basically, the way to describe it is it's everything they don't teach you in the hospital. <laughs> it's all it's all pre-court. It's all I mean, again, you will read in the headlines if something gets to court or sometimes there's mentions this is on the DOJ SEC side. Sometimes there's mentions in in different regulatory filings about an ongoing investigation, but it's usually not in the headlines. And it's usually all, you know, again, pre-indictment and working with the government in a a cooperative stance, usually, typically, um, to fact find. um, And that means, you know, the dreaded document review. But for, for government investigations, it's usually pretty interesting, right? Because it's about the people and what the people have done. It's not like a large civil discovery or bankruptcy where you're going through kind of the financial documents. I mean, those, that plays an important role, but a, a lot of times it's just good, juicy email <laughs> and, and text messages. Be careful what you say in your text messages, people. And WhatsApp is like, is the new one too. Um, not new, but new to, new to, at least in the, in the discovery sense. Sure. So it's fact finding and then talking to the people. And then one of the other interesting things that I, again, had no corporate background whatsoever is like, you have to learn how each industry works and how each company works and realizing how important that is in your role as an advocate, because you have to kind of explain, well, in this industry, that's what they do or or hmm. how your company deviated from that um, and why. So then you're, then you're talking to people, right? So after you've kind of gathered the documents, you're talking to people. 
and depends on the investigation, whether you're talking to the CEO or you could be talking to, you know, 10 lower level employees who have just started at the company. Um, it can be a huge, huge range. And then it just depends. It depends on, again, the posture of the government, which agency you're dealing with. There could be presentations, there could be white papers. You could do all of that and then they proceed with testimony. I mean, it, it really just depends. But it's all hmm. it's all I think of it as being pre-court, although, again, it can get to that point. Right. And then, as you said, like it just it depends on the investigation. It, it, sometimes they're internally focused and there's no government agency at all. Right, right, right. Well, one of the things that struck me, a couple things struck me, but the one that stood out was the idea that you might be in a, a posture where you and the government are sort of working together. Say more a little bit more about what that looks like, because that feels a little less adversarial than what we normally think about when the government uh, is talking to the people that it's uh, investigating. Yeah, again, so sometimes the government's just in a fact-finding posture. So, right, there's no indictment. Maybe there's not even a drafted one. And they have a whistleblower tip and they need to explore hmm. what happened. So you representing the company or sometimes you're representing an individual of the company. And again, that kind of changes the stance of things. But let's say you're representing the company. Sometimes you're almost doing the work for the government in the sense that you're gathering the information, you're figuring out the scope of the problem, and then you're presenting to the government based on you know, that whistleblower tip that that they received. And so in that sense, it can feel less adversarial. Again, it totally depends. But um, sure, that's like that fact finding kind of posture if, if all the parties are in that. Hmm. And, you know, another thing that you mentioned about sort of doing this investigation work is how fact intensive it is. And I guess I'm curious about the balance of sort of traditional what we would think of as legal work and brief writing and researching on Westlaw versus actually just learning and preparing documents about what you've learned. Yeah. So there are definitely um, people in law firms that have no idea like what their Westlaw password is. And, and I'm not one of them. Um, there is definitely, for every case, some legal research, some novel aspect of the law that kind of needs to be dug down into. But like for FCPA, for instance, um, we were looking into a, a very specific issue the other the other week for a client about whether or not that body um, that had some you know government involvement would be considered foreign official under the FCPA. So there's not going to necessarily be a lot of case law on that. So sometimes you're looking at, and again, I had no idea what these things were in law school, but there's like actual DOJ opinions that you can look through that mm. that give advice on. FCPA cases, or there's blogs, or there's or there's Googling just to to see, because again, it's all so much of it is pre-court that you have to find a kind of right. do your research in a different way. But I definitely access Westlaw on, on a regular basis, but on a daily basis. Got it. Got it. And talk to me a little bit about what your days look like. So as one of my former guests said, what would it look like if I kind of followed you around for like a day or a week? What kind of documents are you producing? What kind of communications are you doing? Are you talking to people internally, people externally? Are you doing email, PowerPoint? What do you sort of spend all those billable hours doing? All of the above. <laughs> Lots of collaboration. I think that the teams at Aiken in particular are fairly leanly staffed, but there's always a team on, on, on all of these cases. And it's one of the other things that I tell people to think about when they are picking picking their practice group is like, what do you exactly what you're saying? Like, what do you like to do on a daily basis? Like, do you do you work better in groups? Because some practice groups, um, it's more individual work and it's more, you know, solo type research or whatever else. I'm kind of someone who wants to be gabbing with other people. 
So I'm on Jabber a lot. That's like our internal system um, and and chatting and planning Peloton rides with different associates. Fantastic. <laughs> and then, it, again, it totally depends on the day, but there could be sure. an interview. And so we're prepping for an interview for a case where we've looked at documents and then we're kind of making an outline and kind of flagging which documents we think will be helpful. Sometimes the documents are demonstrative just of their day-to-day life and how they kind of function as an employee in the company. Or sometimes it's more like red flags, like, eek, why did you say this? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can be a little bit off topic, but it, you still kind of need to know, eek, why did you say something like that? Um, <laughs> right. And so that's kind of like the fact finding, you know, again, lots of interface with the client because you're trying to gather information and then lots of kind of team collaboration pre and post on in preparing for gathering that information. It's a little bit of a vague answer, but really my my day to day is very different as long as there's lots of chatting with lots of people. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it sounds like the biggest thing that you keep coming back to and correct me if I'm wrong, is this sort of like fact focused posture. And that no matter what you're doing, you're dealing with facts and having to learn new facts. Is that sort of one way to think about it too? Yeah. And I, and, and I think that that's what makes it so interesting for more junior associates getting into this type of work, because they're usually frontline on finding those facts and flagging them. And again, like as you're saying, those end up being the base of the entire case that you're building and the entire presentation that you're building. Are there any sort of techniques that you found to sort of get up to speed quickly? Are there people that you always want to talk to, questions you always want to ask? Do you want to build a timeline? Like what are some of the techniques that that you use when you get sort of a newer um, client or newer issue come in the door? A very good friend of mine who's a former colleague, Stanley Woodward, um, was senior to me at Aiken when I started. So he he drilled into me certain things that you kind of have to do for each and every case. And one of them is certainly a chronology and a key players list. And that's kind of how you keep everything straight as you're as you're learning. And those end up, again, just being like the backbone that everyone goes back to all the time. Hmm. And so those are key. I think you definitely want to talk to HR. <laughs> right, right. The, the HR is usually very important. They can kind of tell you a little bit about the different relationships between people too, which can be very helpful before you go into an interview. Mm. And they can also kind of help you with the structure of different um, departments and reporting structures. Those are always really important. You want to talk to IT to figure out Mm. who has access to what and what we will have access to. Again, text messages, WhatsApp, Slack, all of those are kind of where you find the juiciest stuff. And so finding out whether or not we can have access to that and how how far back they're saved, those are, those are some key go-to people. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm thinking back to my own experiences as sort of a junior uh, litigator, but I, I did some plaintiff side work. And you're absolutely right. Knowing what the company has, like the denominator of potential material is essential. Yeah. And you know, sometimes you have to be buddy, buddy, uh, or as a partner I used to work for, say, make friends with the IT folks. Like they can help you a lot. Totally. And I guess my last question about investigations is sort of how do people break in? Like, obviously you got a little bit lucky, I guess, because you happened to sort of fall into it and there was a need in that moment, but are there ways to sort, are there skills or there classes people can take that if they they hear what you're saying and they're thinking like, actually, that sounds very similar to what I want my days to look like. Are there ways to sort of stand out and, and get picked up in one of these groups? I mean, I think as a summer, 
and every summer program is different. At Aiken, it's really just expressing interest, getting to know people because you're not designated for a section before you start. So in that sense, you're you are a little bit like networking during your summer. But just when you're in law school right now, let's say like pre or post being a summer associate, but you're just in law school. It's just it, it, you, especially at Georgetown, you have such like a great opportunity to just network with the community at large. But I think that most people in our profession love when people are interested in what they do. And so people like networking and mentoring and talking Mm. to people and making those connections. So it's reaching out. And if you're at a law school where there's adjunct professors taking those classes, I think is like a great idea. Externships are always a great idea. And it's just continuing to expand your network for with people who do that kind of work. Yeah, that's my short answer. I like it. I like it. And I guess the other question, which I like to ask people when they're talking about their practice area is, are there things that you enjoy less about it? Are there parts of the job that are particularly challenging or things that over time you've had to learn to do, but maybe didn't come as easy when you started? This is not substantive, but it's like, it's a client service industry, right? And so Hmm. um, you just have no control over when things are going to drop. You have no idea when a company is going to get a whistleblower complaint. Um, or when the DOJ is going to do a knock and talk, you just no clue. Um, so no, no real control over the timeline, I think is always really challenging. And client services and clients who are, again, nervous, haven't been in this situation before, high stakes, they expect a lot and, and they pay a lot to, to get our services. So I think those are, sure. the, those are the biggest challenges by far. Hmm. Awesome. Well, look, one of the other things that, um, you make very clear on your firm bio and I've learned about you in in sort of preparing is that pro bono is such a huge part of your everyday practice. So maybe just talk to me a little bit about sort of what kind of pro bono work you do. And then we can maybe talk a little bit about sort of how you fit it in. So my focus is, has been that same passion that kind of drove me to law school in the first place. So criminal indigent defense. And when I got to the firm, I wanted to do direct representation, which it's hard for firms to do, right? We're not trained the way the public defenders are and and you need, you know, high level of expertise if you're defending someone in a murder trial, right? And it's going to take up all consuming time. So there was there's some of that work at Aiken and there's been more of that as we've gone on. There's a there's a few partners in New York who are doing CGA work. So they get appointed criminal defense cases, which is awesome. And so more associates are getting that type of work. For me, um, I've done some of that work uh, and then done some capital work and then more recently focused on juvenile life uh, without parole resentencing, both in Louisiana and D.C., um, hmm. parole work, which we can talk about as well, and then compassionate release work, which was kind of flowed from our parole project. And so really was just looking, again, to just amp up how much direct representation we were able to do. And you have to figure out like what works again with our level of expertise and uh, time management and firm resources, um, interest, staffing. Like there's just a lot of considerations on which cases we can take on. But I've I've been given uh, a lot of re- free reign by Steve Schulman, our pro bono partner, to kind of follow what projects that that interest me the most. So it's evolved a little hmm. bit over time. Yeah, and that echoes. I had on sort of I think it was episode fifty, the last episode of last year, two pro bono coordinators from big law firms. And they they sounded very much like you just sounded, right? There is not everything that we can do, but to the extent we can, we want to. You know, one of the things that you talked about was this parole representation project. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so 
my philosophy, and I think Steve has this as well, is like do the work that that you're passionate about because you'll do a better job and you'll keep doing it versus if you assign a first year associate a random parole project where it just doesn't it doesn't do it for them, either because the skills aren't what they want to be developing or because the subject matter isn't something they're interested in, then they won't do that kind of work. So again, Steve has kind of let me roll with my passion and, and my passion project. So for the parole project, it's pretty much like the ideal project for a law firm and, and for law firms to do. It's, it's representing D.C. inmates in their parole hearings. And D.C. inmates are currently housed in BOP facilities. So they're all over the country and they're still under the control of the U.S. Parole Commission. So we don't have a, a local parole board where you would see in typical states have their own control over it. That's an issue that you could probably have an entire podcast on. Sure. And I won't get into too much of the nitty gritty, but it means that they are, are very displaced from their their families and that they are subjected to the these regulations that aren't even being used very frequently because they're the only population really at this point that's subjected to them. And so the WLC has has done a ton of civil litigation over the years on making sure that the rules are being enforced properly for these in DC inmates. And for us, we take on kind of sight unseen through our our great relationship with WLC, these different inmates who are going up for their parole hearings and who typically haven't seen a lawyer in many, many decades and helping them same, you're gonna see the the parallel, right? As my billable work, same thing where you you help them build a factual narrative about not only how they got to where they are right now uh, in the sense of their their prison sentence, but also the last X number of years that they've spent in prison and why they're they're deserving of relief now. And part of the job is to make sure that the the regulations are followed because they're fairly complicated and, and different ones apply to different people depending on the year that they were sentenced. But the other part is it, the huge part is just building that narrative and working with the client um, to making sure that they can they can speak their own narrative hmm. because they're not actually afforded legal representation. Like it's not mandatory and it's not obligation. It's just if, if they opt into it, they connect with WLC and then hopefully they they find a law firm partner and and people have just loved the work. I mean, it's been amazing to watch, but it's it's um, resonated with so many people across the firm. We've had people across the country, attorney-wise, sign up for these projects because you don't need to be in D.C., right? These clients are are located all over the country and you don't need litigation skills. You're in a hearing setting and a posture, hearing posture when you're talking to the examiner, you're not, you know, in a formal courtroom. You get to work with one individual client and many of these these individuals, if they, if we have, if we have not been successful in their hearing, the attorneys at at least at Aiken have agreed to, you know, continue representing these individuals because they've just created such a relationship with these people. And there's just so, I mean, there's so many sad stories, but there's been so many great stories too. And to know that we, you know, have been hand in hand with these individuals when they've been released after decades in, in prison has just been an incredible experience. It's been a little bit different and shifted over COVID. Sure. Again, that kind of a little bit spun out into our compassionate release project as well. But basically, it was the first project that I was able to kind of expand it because, again, there's just so many people in need of representation and so many attorneys who kind of hopped on board. It's been amazing to watch. Wow. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, one of the things that I think some folks are afraid of about taking pro bono projects is there's there's a heavy dose of imposter syndrome, right? When you're on a when you're a junior person on a billable case, there's somebody above you telling you exactly what you're supposed to be doing. 
And if you do it enough times, then maybe next time you can sort of take a more leadership role. You know, how do you sort of counsel folks who are just starting this to make sure that they feel like they have enough skills or that they have the skills to do the job? So I still have imposter syndrome, especially when it comes to pro bono work. And I think that you kind of always should. With A little bit on the Compassionate Release Project, we DC basically in, instituted a Compassionate Release statute at the beginning of COVID that helped a lot of our parole clients become eligible for Compassionate Release. And we partnered with the Public Defender and WLC and a few other organizations on that. And each time that I work with a, with a nonprofit that's focused on criminal indigent defense or, or the Public Defender you realize how much you don't know. Right. So I think it's like there's a healthy, good, healthy dose of that. But because of that, we've also kind of built into our pro bono program a ton of trainings that people can do. We I love partnering with WLC because their coordinator with us, you know, is always available for a phone call. And what's so nice about this project is the more people do it, the more examples we have, the more mm. just internal um, knowledge that we've built up. And so it was definitely scarier in the be- beginning because every time something new came up, we'd be like, wait, has this ever happened before? And and now we're kind of realizing that we we know that we're getting to know the system, the players. And, and so that internal knowledge just took a while to build up. But I think a healthy dose of the of the imposter syndrome, maybe maybe not phrased that way, but a healthy dose of realizing that you're not an expert and that there are huge stakes when it comes to criminal indigent defense is is a good way to go into it. And again, that's why it's like huge when you have a partner organization that's that's willing to listen. The Public Defender Service has done a bunch of trainings for us because I think what's interesting, again, in the criminal indigent defense sphere is you can have really smart lawyers who can ask great questions or or and do great quality written work. But we don't really know about mitigation or reentry plans. And those are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've done a bunch of trainings on that to get people more up to speed and just thinking through those types of issues. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, you are providing value because without you, right, many of these people would not be represented at all. And Correct. it's a matter of supporting those folks who are doing the work and, you know, finding firms that will provide that support, which I guess sort of makes me think of the question, which is, if you're a sort of junior lawyer or new law student and you're looking at different firms, you know, every firm kind of now says we have a pro bono program. Are there ways to sort of, I don't like to use the word, but I'll use it anyway, like sniff out which firms are really committed to pro bono and really committed to giving pro bono opportunities to people that want them? Yeah. I mean, again, asking questions and in, in maybe in like not in the interview setting, but but calling people and chatting with them. I think that at Aiken, most people, when they describe their practice areas, will actually tell you what they do as, as part of their pro bono practice. Like that's incorporated in, it's hand in hand. Like it'll be like, oh, well, I do funds work. Um, and then I'll also do landlord tenant work. You know, it's like it's a package deal at Aiken. Hmm. And so listening to p- how people talk about it, I think that people do ask and mention a lot, like the hours, like whether or not they're capped. Right. Um, they're not at Aiken. I think that's also very important. I mean, sometimes for these cases, like, again, there's capital work at Aiken. You have to be all in. That That's all there is to it. And, you you know, it's not volunteer time, right? It's part of your job because those hours count and that's how you're evaluated. <laughs> so that's big, too. But, yeah, those are my those would be my two tips. Yeah, no, that's really, really helpful. And do you find that your pro bono work sort of makes you a better lawyer in your billable work and vice versa, that your billable work makes you a better pro bono lawyer? Yeah. It's, mine dovetail particularly well, um, but I think that the skills that you get in pro bono cases 
certainly help in any client interaction, even if you weren't doing litigation. And again, the the, the individuals that have signed up for the parole project, I, I don't think I mentioned, but like range of practice areas. And you're still, you're, you're a client advocate, right? So you're getting interaction with clients and their family members. And you're, again, just building those facts and then presenting those. That That's pretty much what you're always doing as a lawyer. For me, it's again, it's been particularly helpful because we don't get, as I mentioned before, we don't get into the courtroom as often on the billable side. It does happen, but not as often. But this colleague that a former colleague that was in Muir Bailson in Philadelphia, I helped her on some of her CJA work and I got to do motions hearings and cross-examine a police officer and prep for trial with her. And so that all helps on the billable side. Even when certainly when we get to to the courtroom, but also knowing what's going to be used once we get if we get to the courtroom. So it's like spotting those red flags Mm. before it even happens. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a ton of sense. And I guess the hardest question that I get from junior lawyers about pro bono is time, right? You're trying to make make us make a place for it in your life. But I mean, you know, I'm a former big law lawyer. Big law lives can be all consuming, like for you at least, how have you sort of negotiated that time management piece of balancing pro bono and um, sort of billable work? I mean, a little, maybe again, this is like a thing to ask people because then it helps get an atmosphere for what the pro bono is like at their firm. But for us, it really is just incorporated into your entire case management. So it's it's a little bit still answering the same question of how you hmm. how do you bu- manage your billable projects? You know, that's pretty hard sometimes. Sometimes you have to say no to things that you really want to do, but you won't do good quality work if you take on another project. And sometimes you have to put a pause on your involvement in a certain case because you're now in charge of another case that's taking over over all of your time. If you just say case and you don't talk about billable and, and non-billable, then it's the same type of, of hmm. strategies. There's always going to be a partner that thinks their case is the most important. And so you're going to have to manage it again on the billable side the same way. I think for pro bono, what's scarier is kind of what you talked about before. Usually more junior people have a lot more responsibility on a pro bono case in, in an earlier basis than they would on a, on a billable case. That's that's typical. I can see that. Sure. But so then then that case has to take a lot of priority. Right. I mean, so you have to you have to kind of weigh it on, based on what your role is on the team. What happens if you you know have to put something back a little bit for a little bit versus another case. But I would just take the pro bono and the billable uh, adjectives out of it. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I think it helps sort of frame the question of how do you spend your time and you spend your time on cases. And, and that is the challenge. You know, I guess I'm curious, I didn't ask you earlier, but like how many cases or matters or clients are you typically working with? You know, I've seen litigators who sort of have one matter that they're focused on 100%. And I've seen... I've talked to other sort of regulatory lawyers who might have 100 clients at any given time. Like, what's your general sort of um, agenda on any at any given time? I have no good answer for you again. And I think it's the same. It goes back to like, what's your day to day? And right. Yeah. And that's why I've loved it, because the work has continued to be so Hmm. dynamic. But I, I can I can think of a six month period, a year period where I was primarily only working on one case. And then now I probably have six different cases hmm. going on. And on the pro bono side, and especially with the parole project, I've been able to be involved in more cases without taking on each as my individual client. So it could be five, but I'm not I'm not the one who's presenting anymore. Now I'm assisting and giving advice and looking at final letters and, and whatnot. So it just depends and it definitely ebbs and flows. 
but yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a solid answer for that. No, that's great. I mean, I think it's something that people don't think about, right? Is, are you the kind of person that wants to be doing a different client every day? Or are you the kind of person who really wants to dig deep? And it sounds like your practice has a natural ebb and flow to it. And that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah. one of the things that I always try to ask people at, I'm again, I won't use ages or years, but at our stage of our career is you're sort of at that point where you're you're typically managing up and managing down at the same time. Yeah. What are some of the things that you look for in sort of junior associates that you kind of wish you knew when you were more junior? And if you don't mind, I might also ask you what you're looking for uh, for the people that you're that are above you on the totem pole. For juniors, or what I wish I had known, I, like I just think that I never thought about like googling things more. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. And like it's like there would be a company or like a term and I would have no idea what it was. And I'd kind of fumble my way through it. And it's like, just look, you know, just take a second and kind of reframe yourself. And yes. there's, there's information out there. Again, like a lot of lawyers go into firms with like no business background whatsoever. So it's not that it's expected that you have the business background or know what different SEC filings are, but you can take a second. And still, I mean, I have to remind myself all the time, like, if you don't know what people are talking about either, I mean, surely you can ask them at some point too, but maybe just take a second and Google it. Mm, yeah, I love that. And I, I think that is so, so important, right? The world of information is at our at our fingertips, yeah. but like there's this hesitance to sort of dig in. And I, I've said this before on the podcast, so I'm not giving away any information, but like for a while at my firm, I was the country's greatest expert on text message pricing between 2005 and 2007. And this was several years later. It was not great coffee, you know, coffee table or a cocktail hour talk, but just be curious and like kind of dig into whatever it is that you're learning about. It sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And any tips on managing up? Well, tips on managing up or what I wish partners did. <laughs> I'll take an answer to either. That's great. I think for, for managing up, and this is juniors to my level too, it's just a reminder that usually like the more senior you get the busier you are, the the bigger your caseloads, the the more kind of high level things you're thinking about. So when presenting information, reminding people where you are at, like huh. giving them a refresher on the facts or why you're even sending this email. I mean, they you know, a week later, it could have just slipped their mind on what the last status update was. So giving people context, I think is really important. Obviously, flagging next steps is always key, but that's really hard. And it's something you have to grow into, um, both with the people that you're working with and the cases. But that's certainly like a huge part of the development in the firm is like seeing what what we should be preparing for next. Um, and you always still get caught flat on your feet. I mean, it's just it is what it is. Partners, I, I've loved the partners that I've worked for. I don't even have to lie about that, which is lovely. Um, <laughs> they have been great. The mentors at Aiken are amazing. I, I really, I think that the frustrations with law firm life is way more from, again, that that not being able to control the client or what a government agency is going to do sure. more so than the partners. I think that what I love about the partners that we work for is that they're kind of in it with you, first of all. I think that's huge. There's like a late deadline. They're not just out and about and then circle back with you on Monday. Like no, no, no fake fire drills, I think is huge and a firm. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think th this again goes to all levels, but taking the time to tell people that they appreciated your hard work. I think that's huge. I think it happens all the time at Aiken and it makes you feel like, you know, that little pat on the back gets you a long way after a long week. Yeah. In my experience, that was absolutely true. Like after a long week, a thank you on a Friday afternoon from a partner could keep me going for a month. I still, <laughs> I still remember some of the best thank you emails I, I ever received. 
because it's not you're not in school anymore, right? So you're not getting grades. Um, and I think that's hard for people because you're like, wow, I just did a great job, but like now what? You know, right? And so, so having someone say you did a great job, well, there, there you go. There, that's your grade, and then that's really helpful. There's a lot of of encouragement to do both informal and formal feedback, um, especially during COVID, because it's not the same where you can kind of pop into an, uh, you know, anyone's office and kind of go through something. So just, and everyone's busy and I get that, but anyone, if you're, if you have someone working under you taking the time to just give them the positive and constructive feedback that everyone kind of deserves and needs to succeed, I think that's huge. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're not getting it, seek it out because. Totally. That's people might just not think about it. Yeah. Right, because uh, which, which dovetails nicely with what you were saying before to juniors is remind folks where where you're at and what you're doing and what I you know the first thing I teach on day one of my class is how to write an email to a <laughs> internal client and we always start with you asked me to do X the answer is Y and here's yeah. why the answer is and people look at me like we're paying all this money to come to to Georgetown Law and you're teaching Writing me about email emails is huge yes. <laughs> But like, and they say, do people really want you to tell them what they asked you to do? And I was like, yes. Like, I know that as a sort of academic matter, because there's a lot of people writing in this space, but I also know it as a having lived it. Yeah, people totally. do not even remember what they asked you even a day later. And that's amazing to students, but it's true. It, it was true in my experience and it sounds like it's true in yours too. And like how you present an email. I mean, all of that, it just ends up being, again, things I guess people are learning in law school now, but stuff we did not learn. <laughs> right, right. Well, we're trying. We'll try. I, will, I won't say we're succeeding, but I will say we're trying. Look, I always end these uh, interviews by asking for some advice. Uh, and I was going to, you've given a bunch of advice. So I might, I might just pull at this email thread real fast. What's your advice to, uh, to folks uh, who are, who are need to write emails internally? How, how do we communicate better as, as lawyers? Short sentences. I think, shoot, I don't know if I have a good one. Short sentences might be it. Uh, you know, it doesn't, it, this is not uh, prose. This is, you know, this is getting the point across like very clearly. Um, another thing that's huge is bullet points, headers. If it's a long email, people love headers. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And don't be scared of a typo. I know everyone's so scared of typos, but they do happen as long as, you know, they don't happen all the time. Don't, don't freak yourself out. I'm the queen of typos. <laughs> yeah, I send my own students things with typos, which is a good reminder to them that that we all make them. Um, exactly. It's interesting. The in-house folks that I've talked to have said that that's something they've had to change if they had big law experience, is that in the big law world, it's sort of like everything has to be perfect. And in the in-house community, it's kind of expected that nothing's going to be perfect, but everything is fast. Yeah, And that those are kind of like, they push against each other a little bit. And so I still think, you know, be precise, use proper punctuation when you can. But as you said, right, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the done. Totally. And again, know, know your audience. So that, I mean, that that's like the big thing and know where it's going. That's huge, right? Because then you might be wor more worried about your typos. I, I just hmm. had that conversation with our partner in charge, Tony. He was like, Abby, I was about to forward this. And I was like, whoops, you know me. And he's like, come on now. And, and I get that. Like if he, if he's going to, if it's presented so that it's going to the client, then think about what the client hmm. wants to see versus the partner. Hmm. That's great advice. Anything else you want to share with the lawyers uh, of the world that that you didn't know? I've shared too much. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, look, Abby, this has been so fun chatting. And um, yeah, I hope we could, we could keep in touch in the future. And again, thanks for taking the time to do it. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Appreciate it. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. 
If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. 